This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. In 1963, William Branham preached a sermon that is very popular within the religious cult that he established. It's a sermon that's very ironic when you examine the contents of the message he is trying to give to his followers. The sermon is entitled, A Pardon. From a Christian standpoint, the greatest irony is that the sermon itself contradicts the scripture reading that is contained within the sermon. And the entire sermon, start to finish, contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. While most people enslaved by this religious cult would argue that I'm nitpicking William Branham's sermon, most cult apologetics would agree that the teaching contained in this sermon is the very foundation of any religious cult that professes that they're Christians. You see, to accept the religious cult, it means that you must first deny the, the work that Jesus Christ did on Calvary. The scripture that William Branham reads for the sermon is Romans 8, 28, and it's one that we're all familiar with. Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And to whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for all of us, how shall he not also with him freely give all things? This passage deals with three topics. Number one, predestination. Before we were even a twinkle in our Father's eye, the Heavenly Father knew that he would call us to be Christians. The Bible says so. The second point is unmerited favor. 
God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Christ Jesus, to die for us and to deliver us from our sin. It was not anything that we ourselves could possibly do. We were called according to his purpose. The third point is salvation. Those who are called are then justified by Christ and will soon be glorified with him. For that purpose, God did not even spare his own son. Who can stand against us when a heavenly father will forfeit his own son to save the lives of us? These three topics in this one single passage in Romans is mind-boggling. Paul was very clear and very concise when he wrote his letters, and the depth of his messages that he gives is fantastic. This passage also reminds me of my favorite scripture, Ephesians 2.8. Paul also writes, for by, the grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. Here's the key, and not of yourselves. He says, it is the gift the unmerited favor of God. Paul understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it meant to the world. Christ came to a lost and a dying world. He was sent by the Father to a people that had completely rejected him. God knew that the children of Israel could never keep their half of the bargain, and they would never be able to fulfill the old covenant. All throughout the books of the Bible, through kings and judges and the old prophets and more, the story was exactly the same. One man would rise up, he would discover the book of the law, and see that the people were not following it, and cry out for repentance. Then, many times, that very same person would fall into the same idolatry that he stood against not long before. And then another would rise in his place, and another, and another. Time after time, man after man, even women, rose up to bring the people to a righteous life. But every single time, every single time, it resulted in failure. In fact, if you study the Old Testament, you'll find that the moral of the story is that we will never be saved by works righteous faith. There is not a single thing that you can do or that I can do by ourselves to make ourselves more righteous and more holy. It's not the dresses we wear. It's not the jeans that the men wear. There's nothing that we can do within ourselves to save ourselves. That is the very reason that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for all sin. He did what we could not do. So Paul, in his ministry, proclaimed the good news that God so loved us that he forfeited his own son to save our lives. God sent Jesus to free us from the bondage of the law so that we can become heirs with the king. But then, if you'll notice in Paul's letters, Paul warned that many men would rise time and again and try to place us back in that bondage. 
Branham's example is so grossly inaccurate that it's actually comical. He gives a story of a good old boy who is sentenced to death during what we would call the Civil War, but what Branham calls the Revolutionary War. And I've noticed this. When William Branham invents or twists a story, he typically adds a statement that is so grossly inaccurate that our mind focuses in on that obvious false statement. It's almost as if it's being planted on purpose. We all know that it's not Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln during the Revolutionary War. Branham knew that. But it's so blatantly obvious, we're sitting there, we're thinking of that while he's speaking, and then he gets the whole story all messed up, and we don't even catch it. You see, in this heart-wrenching story, William Branham describes a journey to pardon. The journey was all the way to President Lincoln. How much of a struggle there was just to even get the pardon. How much the people had to do by themselves. Then, when the Almighty Lincoln gave his pardon, Branham describes how hard they struggled just to come back and to deliver the pardon. The man sentenced to death, the works of the people to get the pardon, the works of the people to bring the pardon back, the works of the people to try to get him to accept the pardon. And yet, after all of this, the man waiting to be hung for abandoning his post, as William Branham says, refused Lincoln's pardon. Now, had William Branham stopped right here and said, and Lincoln so loved this man that he sent his own son to die in this man's place and saved the life of that man and spared the people of the city and offered sanctuary to the entire armies of the Union and the Confederate. If he'd have said that, the sermon would have been actually entirely different. It would have matched the scripture that William Branham just read. But it didn't. Instead, William Branham weaves his religious cult theology into the sermon. It wasn't Branham's own theology. It was similar to the false teaching of Branham's mentors, Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Smith, John Alexander Dowie, these men that William Branham knew and respected that created their own cults. The man's salvation in William Branham's story rested upon the works of the people, not of the man in charge, the man who can make the decision. They had to struggle to even get the pardon. The pardon was not offered freely as Christ did for us. And the pardon was delivered by the people, not like God sending his own son when the people were incapable of salvation. The pardon was refused by the man sentenced to death, but rather than God forgiving the children of Israel in Branham's teaching, God would have allowed every single Jew in the Bible to die. The man hung because he did not accept the pardon. It's striking that when you consider that the Bible that William Branham studied from George Lamza interpreted Jesus' words, dying words on the cross, my God, my God, 
for this I was spared? In other words, Father, why did you send me here if these people are going to reject me? Take me down! I'm too young to die. Let them fend for themselves. Let them hang because they refused the pardon. That is what Branham is teaching here. There are huge holes in William Branham's false teaching. Sadly, these holes are woven through his entire ministry. The false prophecies and the lies that he give to hide his past are inconsequential when you consider the false teaching. Why William Branham even carried his Bible, I'll never know. I don't believe that he even read it. The event that William Branham describes actually happened in 1833 during Andrew Jackson's presidency, not Abraham Lincoln's. And the defendant was not simply abandoning his post by not wanting to kill his fellow man. The defendant in the actual story was guilty of theft and wanton endangerment of a postal worker. The incident was so horrific that the death penalty was given to this man. And the pardon was not on some little handwritten note that the man would see and question whether it was authentic. It came from the President of the United States written and delivered by government officials on an official letterhead with the President's seal stamped on it. The person sentenced to death did not mistakenly reject the pardon. He was so filled with hate and rage that he willingly chose to end his life just for spite. It went before the Supreme Court in 1927, during William Branham's lifetime. He would have known that this was not the Revolutionary War. He would have read about it in the newspapers. This was not President Lincoln. The man was not guilty of a questionable crime. That's why he planted the obvious problem within a hidden web of deceit in his sermon. He knew it was not the Revolutionary War. He knew it was not Abraham Lincoln. He knew the story. But that's irrelevant. You must understand that salvation does not rest on our shoulders. We're all born into sin, and we will fail daily. Sin is not unbelief as William Branham tries to shove down our throats. That false teaching keeps you in bondage. No matter how hard you try, you are going to sin while we live in this life. It doesn't matter if you're a simple man sitting in a pew, or if you're a pastor, or if you're an evangelist, or if you're a prophet, especially a false prophet. You see, when sin entered the world, it became a common problem for all of us. And we will remain in sin, in this world, until the king comes and returns to his throne. There's absolutely nothing that we ourselves can do to rid ourselves of sin. If mankind could have just lifted them up, themselves up from the sin of the world, then there would be no reason for the Father to send Christ, his own Son, to die for us. You must understand that this is the very reason that Satan sends deceivers into the world. Satan is powerless. Although the cult may teach you differently, 
that this is his Eden, Satan is powerless. He was defeated on the cross. And if he was defeated on the cross, he has no power. The only power that Satan has is if we, as humans, give it to him. If we condemn ourselves in our hearts by thinking that we are unbelievers because we sin, then we are actually doing the work that Satan can no longer do by ourselves. Worse, if we take away our understanding of the belief in Jesus Christ, then we essentially have taken away our own salvation. That's how Satan can enslave us and strap chains of everlasting bondage on us and drag us down into the pits of hell. There's only one pathway that leads to Jesus Christ and salvation. Grace from the Heavenly Father, faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't something that we can do ourselves. Otherwise, Jesus would never have had to die for us. The worst part of William Branham's sermon is that it is the underlying theme for his entire ministry, what you people call the message. Deny the work that Jesus Christ did on Calvary so that we can become failures by trying to do it by ourselves. Wouldn't you rather trust in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross? Or do you want to become failures? I'll let you decide.